Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Nobel Prize winner Professor Alvin Ross of Stanford University. We talk about matchmaking markets, repugnant markets, and market design. Why not check out the show notes page and all the links mentioned in this episode on economicrockstar.com forward slash Alvin Ross. If you would like to join the conversation on Economic Rockstar, why not email me on frankconway at economicrockstar.com. These are matching markets. They're markets where you can't just choose what you want. Even if you can afford it, you also have to be chosen. And a lot of the most important markets in the world are matching markets where prices may be important, but they're not decisive in deciding who gets what. Markets are, are human artifacts, are tools that we build to help us coordinate and cooperate and trade with each other, transact with each other. That's part of the story of market design is markets have, marketplaces have to help make markets thick and uncongested and safe. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Alvin Roth join me today. Hi, Alvin. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks. Alvin Roth is the Craig and Susan McCaw Professor of Economics at Stanford University. He is also the Gunn Professor of Economics and Business Administration Emeritus at Harvard University. Professor Ross has made significant contributions to the fields of game theory, experimental economics and market design and is known for his emphasis on applying economic theory to solutions for real-world problems. In 2012, Alvin won the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences jointly with Lloyd Shopley for the theory of stable allocations and the practice of market design. Alvin has a BS from Columbia University and earned his MS and PhD from Stanford University. Alvin's latest book, Who Gets What and Why? The New Economics of Matchmaking and Market Design, is now available on Amazon. Alvin, I'd love to start from the beginning, because when I came across your work, it opened my eyes in terms of how I saw economics from evolving from a barter system to one where we removed this, what could you say, double coincidence of want problem when the fiat currency was introduced. And then we're kind of back to a situation where there's that problem exists in a market that you're studying. So could you remind us, what is economics? And is it necessary to have a price to allow markets to operate efficiently? Well, economics is about how to allocate scarce resources and how to make them less scarce, how to produce them and and trade them. And money, prices, are a great market design invention for making lots of markets work efficiently. And when we think of commodity markets, which are another great invention, you know, refining the definition of goods so that, that you don't have to inspect them before buying them, then prices can do all the work. But lots of markets aren't commodity markets. I work for Stanford University. Stanford doesn't hire its professors by just announcing a price low enough so that just only enough professors will want to come and teach. Right? It's, it's actually a pretty good job. There, there's a, a high salary and lots of people would like to be professors here. But you can't just come work at Stanford. You have to be hired. And that's true of, of most job markets, that uh, people aren't commodities. You care who you hire. So so you don't just announce a price. You you have a hiring mechanism. And it's true on the other side, too. You care who you work for. At a given wage, you might be willing to work for 
a university and a, at a different wage for a, a corporation. So these are matching markets. They're markets where you can't just choose what you want. Even if you can afford it, you also have to be chosen. And a lot of the most important markets in the world are matching markets where prices may be important, but they're not decisive in deciding who gets what. And there are some matching markets where we don't let prices play a role at all. Uh, I've, I've worked on public school choice, for example, assigning children to public schools. I've worked on kidney exchange, figuring out which patients will get which organs. And those those are both places where, where we don't allow price to, to play much of a role at all. So your typical market, commodity market, has a demand curve. Do these markets, matchmaker markets, have a demand point or a demand? does a demand curve exist? Well, a demand curve... It is a representation of a commodity. It represents a commodity market well because you can talk about quantities. But when you're a Google corporation hiring engineers, you don't just demand a quantity of engineers. You want to hire particular engineers. You care who makes up your staff. So a demand curve is less of a good way to summarize that market. That's, that, that Google has demands for workers, but but it can't be easily summarized by a demand curve. At, at each price, how many engineers would they hire? In fact, they pay their engineers different wages. So there isn't a price for engineers. And depending which ones they get, you know, they, they can be full up, but, but someone exciting comes along and they want to hire him. And they can be looking for workers, but not want to hire me because I can't program. So, so their demands are very specific they, they, uh, and, and hard to summarize in a simple curve. People always have a willingness to pay, be it for an employee or for any particular good or service. But when it comes to a market like what you've mentioned earlier on for kidneys, that willingness to pay becomes priceless because you're dealing with a life. So can these markets eventually be commoditized? Well, kidneys have to be matched pretty particularly. So so your, your demand, if you're suffering from kidney failure, your demand isn't for a kidney. You need a specific kidney that will work for you. But on the matter of kidneys, as it happens, for reasons that I'm interested in understanding better, it's against the law just about everywhere in the world to pay for kidneys. So purchasing a kidney is something that a lot of people would like to do. Many people are willing to sell them. There are black markets around the world for kidneys, but but it's against the law everywhere except in the Islamic Republic of Iran where there's a, a monetary market for kidneys. So it's what I call a repugnant transaction, a transaction that some people would like to engage in and other people think that they shouldn't. We can talk more about that. But this business of prices, let's go back to commodities and matching markets. Mm -hmm. In a commodity market, I can tell you the price of AT&T shares. All AT&T shares are the same when you buy them on the New York Stock Exchange. So all you need to know is the price. But in a labor market, sorry, let's go back to the New York Stock Exchange. So you need a price for each security that's sold in the New York Stock Exchange. But that's a relatively small number of securities compared to the number of possible traders and people who could own shares. But in a labor market, you need a you, prices have to be doubly personalized often, right? That is, there's a price that Google would pay me as as my wage. There's a price that Google would pay you. There's a different price that Facebook would pay me, and a different price that Facebook would pay you, and different prices that you different wages that you would be willing to accept to work for those different places. So all of a sudden, the set of prices is just as big as the set of possible matches, and that means that it's harder to organize the market through prices. You have to to discover the prices, you have to do just as much work as, as discovering the matches, whereas, whereas in a commodity market, you just have to set the prices so supply equals demand, and then everyone can go and choose what they want. So this difficulty, how is it resolved, or 
is this something that we should try to talk about now or wait till later? Well, no, no, we can talk about it. I mean, you know, in, in the New York Stock Exchange, the job of the New York Stock Exchange is just to do price discovery. And when they announce prices at any point, if you want shares at the going, you know, at, at the price of, of a going offer, you can just buy them. No one cares who you are. You don't care who you're buying from. But labor markets are different than that. College and university admissions is different than that, right? So, again, I, I teach at Stanford University. We don't fill our freshman class by raising the tuition until just enough students remain to fill the seats. There are a lot of students who would like to go to Stanford at the current prices. And so there's an application process and an admissions process. All of these things are absent in commodity markets. When you want to uh, buy shares on the New York Stock Exchange, you you don't have to get accepted. I mean, well, only your price has to be accepted, nothing about your identity. You don't have to identify yourself. But, but when you apply to college, when you apply for a job, you have to identify yourself in great detail. They want to know where you've worked before and uh, what's your education and what are your accomplishments. Nobody asks you that when you're buying stock on the New York Stock Exchange. And of course, commodity markets are themselves designed. Uh, one of the things I say in the book is that you know, God made wheat, but the Chicago Board of Trade made number two hard red winter wheat. And when you want to buy 5,000 bushels of number two hard red winter wheat, you don't have to inspect it because all of, all of those adjectives describe exactly what you would get. But if you're just buying wheat, every field of wheat is different. You would have to inspect it to find out what you were getting. So by creating commodities, it becomes possible to trade just on the basis of price, which is very efficient. But labor markets, for instance, don't work like that. Marriage doesn't work like that. You can't just choose your spouse. You also have to be chosen. This is something that Gary Becker would have talked about in quite detail back in the 1960s when no one else was really talking about it, the market for marriage. And it does seem odd, perhaps for people outside the economic spectrum, that economists should be talking about the marriage for market. But when we're talking here about matchmaking. That's well, match matchmaking is part of what markets do. They yes. bring together people interested in transacting with each other. And matchmaking is like putting two couples together. So that's essentially it, isn't it? When you're putting a, an employer with an employee or one kidney donor to someone who's receiving a kidney, that's effectively the same thing. It's a kind of matchmaking. And, and indeed, you know, markets are, are human artifacts, are tools that we build to help us coordinate and cooperate and trade with each other, transact with each other. So, you know, there's not that much difference between a, a dating website and a job market website. In both of them, you have suitors on both sides looking for a good match. When you're studying matchmaking markets, it's important to have a good market design for that. And in the past, you've identified some of these markets that have inefficient market design. And you solve some of these through maybe algorithms, especially one for looking at doctors and setting them up for a residency and trying to match them that way. How important is market design to this whole field of economics? Well, markets need designs. The, the rules of a market are its design. And some markets are designed incrementally by trial and error over a long period of time. Uh, and sometimes markets fail. And new designs allow them to be fixed and sometimes there are missing markets and new designs allow them allow those markets to be created so think of companies like well like google which is a marketplace for advertisements or airbnb which matches travelers to 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 rooms to hosts or uber which matches 
travelers to cars and drivers. Uh, those are all markets that didn't exist very long ago. They all have very particular designs that, that allow them to work effectively. Some of those designs, incidentally, violate local regulations. You know, Airbnb and Uber are, are riding roughshod over regulations about hotel taxes and taxi licenses. Um, but I imagine that in the long term, we will see something like Airbnb and something like Uber uh, remaining in those markets because the new technology that makes them possible makes the old technology of hailing taxis an undesirable way to, to design the market anymore. So these market failures create opportunities for entrepreneurs or even for us to, as economists to try to fix the problems. And recently I spoke to Christine Exley. She's a professor in Harvard, and she spoke quite highly of you. Quoting her, she said that you're someone who always encourages to dream bigger. So, um, uh, well, well, Christine has uh, has a number of big dreams. You you probably talked to her about her her site for taking care of uh, for for matching people with pets. Yes. Uh, so so she's very interested in dogs and, and other pets and how they're cared for and and there are a lot of pets in the world and uh, they need good matching to homes. And this is exactly it, you know, the matchmaking process going on. Going back to your discussion or mentioning of repugnant markets, what are thick markets compared to thin markets? Okay, so that's a, a, those are two separate questions. So when you think about what marketplaces have to do to make markets work well, the first thing they have to do is help make the market thick. They have to bring a lot of people together. So Airbnb would not be nearly as an interesting a company if they only had rooms to offer in San Francisco. The fact that they have rooms all over the world means wherever you want to go, you might think about Airbnb. And if they only had customers from San Francisco, they wouldn't be a thick market. You wouldn't want to offer rooms in Ireland. There are just too few people from San Francisco coming. But but if there are lots of people looking for rooms and lots of people offering rooms, you've got a thick market that, that makes it possible to, to just go to this one place and look for rooms all over the world. Similarly for Uber, if there weren't a lot of people with the Uber app on their smartphones, and if there weren't a lot of drivers available, uh, it wouldn't be much of a market. Even if you had the app, you'd, you'd after a while, you'd learn not to turn it on if there were never any cars available, and they wouldn't hire any drivers if, uh, if there weren't passengers. So you need to bring people together to make the market thick. Now, so that's just something that has to do with marketplaces. And then another thing that marketplaces have to do, once they succeed in making the market thick, they have to deal with congestion. If when you opened the Uber app, it showed you 100 possible drivers, and you had to communicate with each one and ask if they were available, well, you'd never open the app again. That wouldn't be a good way to to choose among the possible drivers, and it wouldn't be a good way for the drivers to contact possible passengers. But they have an app. They have software that, that does an efficient job of cutting through that congestion, so you don't have to worry about all the choices. Airbnb has a tougher problem of congestion. The analogy I use in the book is, you know, suppose that that their competitors, which are big hotel companies, supposing they could only talk to you about one room at a time. So when you wanted to get a room in, in Dublin at the Hilton Hotel, I assume there's a Hilton Hotel in Dublin, uh, you'd have to call up and, and say, you know, can I have a room on Friday? And they'd say, well, which room do you want? And you'd say, okay, well, how about, how about room 578? And they'd say, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, room 578 is booked on Friday. And then they'd hang up. And you have to call back and you say, how about room 579? That's a little bit Airbnb's problem because if I want to rent a room from Airbnb in Dublin, I have to try to rent a particular room. And if it's booked, I have to go back and try to rent a different room 
operated, you know, offered by a different host. So if it weren't for the Internet and web servers and things like that, it would be very hard to deal with Airbnb. It's not it, – it would have been much – they always were house-sharing arrangements, but they didn't approach the – the size and thickness of of a hotel market until the internet and and smartphones came along so that people could do these things efficiently so that's part of the story of market design is markets have marketplaces have to help make markets thick and uncongested and safe you'd like to know that the pictures you see of those airbnb apartments will look like the apartment when you get there so they have reputation mechanisms and feedback you know you'd like to be sure that the uber driver knows how to drive, so they have reputation systems. Incidentally, you have a reputation on Uber, too. The, the driver likes to know that when he gets to your house, you'll come out promptly and not make him wait. So there are lots of ways of making markets safer and less congested, even while keeping them thick. Now, you asked a different question, which is what, what are repugnant transactions? So repugnant transactions, by and large, are transactions that we that we don't support in markets that we would like not to see. So so I mentioned already it's illegal in Ireland and in the US and in almost everywhere to buy and sell kidneys for transplant. But you know in Europe it was uh, repugnant for for centuries in the middle ages uh, to charge interest on loans. We could hardly have the kind of global capitalist economy that we have today if we didn't have a market for capital. Mm-hmm. So those things are are consequential. You know, it's not just kidneys. You know, the the most common way in the in the 1700s, the most common way to buy passage across the Atlantic Ocean from Ireland to the United States was to sell yourself into indentured servitude. Yes. That is, you'd you'd sign a, an article of indenture, and when the the ship that brought you across the sea got to Boston Harbor, the captain would sell your labor services, unconditional labor services, for five years to the highest bidder. Well. That wasn't repugnant then, you know, but but it is now. That's not a legal labor contract in the United States anymore. Uh, so it's not that as we get all modern, ancient repugnances all fall away. Some things that weren't so repugnant become repugnant, and these things these things matter. We've seen a big change around the world. I'm not sure what the story is in Ireland right now, uh, but we've seen a big change around the world in uh, same-sex marriage in the United States in until 2004 you two people of the same sex couldn't marry each other anywhere in the United States and today in 2015 it's the law of the land that that they can marry like like people of different sexes in every state and that was a a tough fought battle that, that is even though the laws have all changed, it's still something that deeply divides Americans. But a marriage is – a same-sex marriage, say is, – is just the kind of thing I mean when I talk about a repugnant transaction because it's a transaction that some people want to engage in. They want to marry each other, and other people who aren't going to be party to the transaction don't want them to. And that's you know that that's also something we see say with kidney sales or whatever. Of course, all these things are different. The, the concern about kidney sales is about – protecting poor and vulnerable people who might somehow be caught up in kidney sales. And when you look at the, the black markets for kidneys, they operate very, very badly. You know, you, you have to deal with criminals in order to engage in them, which is already a, you know, a bad idea. But that's a different question than how, how we should address the shortage of organs for transplants around the world. All these repugnant markets, as you mentioned, regarding the same-sex marriage in Ireland, we had the referendum and we voted for same-sex marriage there back in May. Uh-huh. So, so that was the the politicians handed it over to the people, and we made our decision 
obviously you may have that divide, but it was a uh, quite an astound- outstanding result. I think it was sixty five to thirty five in okay. favour of. But there are, as you said, what were once old repugnant markets have disappeared. But same, same some of them seem to reverse as well. I'm not oh, that, sure. That's why I mentioned indentured servitude, for example. Yeah, and then we, there's one you gave an example of horse meat as well that. There was a recent ban on it in California. But yeah, not, not that recent. It's a 1998 referendum. So it's not an ancient cowboy law, no. but it's a, a modern law. There, there's, it's a felony to serve horse meat for human consumption in California. So that's not, so there's a law against eating horse meat in California, not because no one wants to eat horse meat, but because some people do want to eat horse meat and other people don't want them to. Yes. Right, there's no law in California against eating worms. <laughs> You'd be thinking, why would there be? But who knows? I'm sure there are people out there that probably do eat worms. But I don't think anyone minds if they do. In other words, go, you know, enjoy yourself, eat worms. <laughs> but but some people are offended if you want to eat horse meat. Whereas, you know, in in France, there are butchers who do nothing but sell horse meat, chevalines, and similarly in, in Germany. Uh, so there are places in the world where people eat horse meat, and there are places in the world where... Where it's illegal in California, I'm standing in one of the places where it's illegal. And have you ever eaten anything that was quite repugnant? Well, repugnant in that sense. So I, I um, you know, the, remember, there's a difference between repugnant and say distasteful or disgusting, mm-hmm. right? Things that are disgusting, no one wants to eat. That, oh. you know, so may, maybe no one does want to eat worms. But repugnance is a different story. It, that has to do with other people's opinions about what you should do. So I may have eaten things that. You would find repugnant, but I eat them. <laughs> would you ever have eaten like snails or crickets or anything like that? I have not, no. but uh, but but I don't think anyone would want to stop me from if I wanted to. You know? Cr- crickets and that's not a repugnant market, would not Because most people in the world eat consume crickets, and people do. Do, mo- do. do most people in the world consume crickets? I'm sure, based on the population in terms of Asia and so on, so. Not, ah. You know, Europeans, I have personally have eaten cricket flour. Uh-huh. You know, people adopt personal codes of what they eat too. You know, there are vegetarians there. So it might be, you know, they, it may be when you say, have I ever eaten anything repugnant? You know, sometimes I eat meat. Yeah. So it might be yeah. that there are people who not only don't eat meat themselves, but who think that I shouldn't eat meat. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a big issue about how farm animals are treated, right? I, I would yeah. like to eat cruelty-free food. You know, it would be nice if if the things I eat had a nice life. Yes. Uh, so I imagine that we may see growing repugnance to certain kinds of foodstuffs as we get more prosperous and more informed about farming on a large scale, things like that. And I'm, I'm sure GMOs are probably heading down that way as well with the European ban on genetically modified foods. Right. So I'm not quite sure I understand mm. that. We we have a different set of legislation about that in the United States. Some of those things might be simple repugnance. You don't think I should do it. Some of them might be worry about negative externalities. You're afraid that the crops, other crops will get contaminated with, with wild genes of some sort. And some of it might be just ordinary protectionism, right? It would be nice if European farmers could enjoy high prices without competition from American farmers. Your work on the kidney market, kidney donation market in terms of matchmaking, has saved many, many lives, you know, based on the system that you created. 
do you know in terms of the context how powerful this is? I know you were awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics to reflect your work on this, and many congratulations. Extremely deserved because of this life-changing experience that people come across in terms of your work. But do you know in terms of what context that has actually helped people? Well, okay, so the way kidney exchange works is a kidney transplant is the treatment of choice for kidney failure, but there are not enough kidneys. So in the United States, and and this is paralleled in Europe, in the United States, we have about 100,000 people waiting for deceased donor kidneys, kidneys from people who have died, but whose kidneys remained uh, viable. But we only get about 11,000 of those transplants a year. So the waiting list is very long. Waiting time is very long. And uh, thousands of people die each year while waiting. Kidney disease is a deadly disease. But kidneys are unusual because you have two kidneys. And if you are as healthy as I hope you are, you could give a kidney to someone you loved who needed it and remain healthy. So if someone you loved was dying of kidney disease, you could give them a kidney. But sometimes you're healthy enough to give a kidney, but you can't give it to the person you love because kidneys have to be matched. The person who needs a kidney doesn't need just any kidney. They need a kidney that fits into their biology just right. So you might be an incompatible patient-donor pair. That is, you have a patient who you love. You're a donor who's, who's able to give a kidney, but, you, but your kidney is incompatible with your patient. And I could be in the same situation, and that's where kidney exchange comes in. Maybe you could give a kidney to my patient, and I could give a kidney to your patient, and we'd save two lives, save, and we'd we'd create two more transplants than were available before. So it would help people who were waiting for transplants because too fewer people would be waiting for those scarce deceased donor organs. So that's what kidney exchange is, and there are a lot more complicated exchanges now than just between two pairs, there are sometimes long chains wow. of exchange. And it's, as you said at the beginning, I think it's, it's barter. You know, the, you have to find other ways to overcome the, the, the double coincidence of wants than, than paying money because it's against the law. And there's now a, a great deal of kidney exchange in the U.S. It's become a very standard form of transplantation here. And it's spreading around the world. There's kidney exchange in the U.K. and in Australia in Holland, and in a number of other European countries on, on a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're starting to see it grow, and we'd like to see it grow more, because around the world, there's a shortage of kidneys for transplantation. So this is what you're uh, describing there is a thickening process of this particular market by allowing more people to be involved in terms of the, the donation or the transaction. Sure. We're trying to make a thick market for exchanging kidneys so that there's a database of patient donor pairs so that we can find exchanges and, and chains and, and you know, more complicated exchanges. Could this database be similar to, say, a sperm donation bank? Well, it could be, except that there's this exchange element. You, you, you're not only giving something away, you're also getting something back. Okay. And I'm sure this database will evolve perhaps to allow doctors and patients to tap into it and select a kidney? Or is it well, a matter of se- selection? Or would you have to meet that other person? Well, no, no, don't you, you don't have to meet them. But remember, it's a, it's a matching market. You can't just choose what you want. You also have to be chosen. So think about two-way exchange. It could be that your kidney is good for my patient. But if my kidney isn't good for your patient, we can't do that Indeed. exchange. Oh, okay. Well, that's unfortunate. Well, so it's complex. It's, it's, it's deserving of market design, right? To, to think about how to overcome the, the barriers caused by the, the double coincidence of wants, right? That, that's why we mostly use money when we're selling houses, mm-hmm. right? I, when I moved from Boston to California, 
I have a house in Boston. I want a house in California. I shouldn't have to depend on finding someone in California who wants a house in Boston and who wants my house and I want their house. So, of course, what I do is I sell my house and I come with, you know, with, with much too little money to California where I try to buy a California house. Yes. And so money is a great market design invention, but we don't allow it for kidneys. And perhaps as a consequence, there's a big shortage of kidneys. So there's a, a debate around the world about how we should incentivize organ donation so that we get more organs. And the concern, the people who think that it's a bad idea to buy and sell kidneys, and they are, you know, the, the, when I say these people, these people, it's against the law everywhere in the world. So we collectively think it's a bad idea, whether or not, whatever you and I individually might think. And the concern is that the wrong people would be somehow given undue incentives to sell kidneys and they would later be harmed. They would be harmed by the transaction. And, of course, when you look at the black markets, there's no question that, that often the people who sell their kidneys are harmed. They, they deal with criminals. They don't get the – not only don't they get the money that they were promised, but they don't get the, the, the care that, that, that you need after you've had a surgery, even if it's a pretty safe surgery. So you certainly don't want to organize kidney transplants through black markets. And I can understand why if you're trying to have matching pairs and a donation, that's if someone's not a fit for your kidney and you're a fit for theirs, the transaction may not take place because you want the partner, your donor partner to maybe hold, hold on to that as an insurance clause against. Absolutely. So we do a lot of exchanges simultaneously. And we also, instead of just having two pairs exchange, we sometimes have many pairs involved and, and, coordinate a, a big match. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in your book, uh, Professor Jerry Green in Harvard University had gone through a similar process. If you want to elaborate on that? Well, no, no. Well, Jerry, Jerry is a pilot. And in the early days when we were doing this, private pilots like Jerry flew the kidneys around to help the transaction. So, so Jerry is a pilot and he belongs to an organization, I think, called Angel Flight, something like that, which does good works with airplanes. Okay. And so in the very early days, you know, now it's become much more regularized. But, but when we were just starting kidney exchange, the question was how to, how to get the kidney where it was going. And Jerry flew some of the kidneys that, that were, made available by the the New England Program for Kidney Exchange. How are you finding life in Stanford or California? Very very nice. Uh, There's a little bit of a drought. We could use some rain, but what that means is that every day the weather is very nice. The droughts are still going on, yes? It is, it is. We had a a very, very light rain yesterday. We're going to need a great deal more than that before the reservoirs are up to, to where they belong. And incidentally, there's a problem with the market for water in California. We have different rules and property rights for flowing water and for groundwater, for instance. And it's hard for people to sell their rights. And, and it's hard to move water around from one place to another. So there's, places where water is needed and there's places where water is probably being used pretty inefficiently, but it's hard to get the water from the places where it's used inefficiently to the places where it's needed. And it's hard for both physical and financial reasons. So new market design thoughts on water will probably be useful in the long term in California. Would it be the case that everybody that is affected in some way or another by drought are affected equally or do people have more water available to them? Well, obviously, people who live near rivers have a different story than people who live far from rivers. Mm-hmm. People who grow crops are in a different situation than people who live in cities and need, need different amounts of water for different uses. So, yes, people are affected very differently by drought. 
it might be that someone who, who, when water was abundant, decided to plant almond trees and use flood irrigation, might be able to, if, if he could, he might be able to sell his water to people who, to whom it would be more valuable and use the proceeds to install drip irrigation so that he'd use much less water to irrigate his almond trees. Yeah. Professor Ross, could you share with our listeners maybe a book other than the one that you have recently that I mentioned um, who gets what and why? A book that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, there are lots of good books. Uh, there's Danny Kahneman's book on how you think about the decisions you make, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. A lot of people have enjoyed that book, for instance. Yeah, it's a fantastic book, all right. And a couple of economists have already recommended that on the podcast to date. Uh-huh. Your work on repugnant markets, and not, not only repugnant markets, but matchmaking markets, is there a theoretical background of all of this or is this something that you had to uh, take from other theoretical models and try to create a theoretical background to us in order to be able to explain how your modeling technique is going to evolve to be able to well i mean we both draw on previous models and and create our own so the the you know i shared the nobel prize with lloyd shapley and he wrote a paper in 1962 with the late david gale that formed a lot of the basis for not kidney exchange, but but for some of the work we've done on labor market clearing houses and on school matching in, in different American cities. So that was certainly something we built on. Some parts of kidney exchange, not the ones that have actually been implemented, but some of our initial proposals came from what were motivated, were, were inspired by a, another paper by Shapley and, and Herb Scarf uh, mm-hmm. on how to trade indivisible goods uh, without money. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we certainly stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, certainly. How important is game theory to this? Because we, in a way, touched on it when we were saying that if there is no matching, a successful matchmaking going on, you hold on to your donor so that they will actually be incentivized to find another match for their, right. their for the patient. But there could be cases, and there has been cases that you mentioned, where doctors have actually tried to falsify and make their patients a lot sicker so that they will top the list in terms of getting a particular uh, donation. Well, so so now you're talking about deceased donation, which, which works on waiting lists. Okay. Uh, but game theory is very important for market design because – because marketplaces run by rules and game theory is the study of the rules of the game and how they affect how people play and what happens. Mm-hmm. So so we're always dealing with rules. We're deep into game theory territory when we talk about market design. When we talk about making markets safe. What we mean is under the given rules, can you proceed to do the things you need to do to get good outcomes in a, in a safe way and not be harmed by, by the market or by other players? So we're always thinking about rules and incentives and how people – try to use the market to get what they want and need, which is, and, and how the market should be designed to make it safe for them to do that. And your work also takes into account um, schools and how parents would actually enroll their children into some of these schools. And that right. was a problem, especially in the Boston area. And well, you, you were approached to solve it. Yeah. So we, we've designed, my colleagues and I have designed a number of school choice systems in, in American cities. And what the problem you refer to in Boston had to do with the issue of safety. The, the Boston, the Boston already had a school choice system when we met them, but 
their system didn't make it safe to, for families to tell the city what schools they really wanted because they used a system that made it really important to get whatever school you listed as your first choice because if you didn't do that, you would do very badly. Mm-hmm. So parents had to think not, not what school was really their first choice and their second choice and their third choice. They had to think, what school should I name as my surf- first choice? What's the best school I can confidently get if I claim that it's my first choice? And that's a very different problem than deciding which schools would be good for your kids. Have you ever been approached by companies like Airbnb and Uber about their models? I, I occasionally talk to companies that run marketplaces, absolutely. And how, do, how does that um, work for you in terms of maybe implementing your work through that company and whether it's been successfully launched or some ideas that you have in order to solve their problems? Well, a lot of a growing number of companies are in fact organizing markets. You, you mentioned yes. two just now, Airbnb and Uber. And as, as that becomes a more common thing for companies to do, market designers find that they can be helpful. And indeed, many of those companies have hired market designers. So Google's chief economist is Hal Varian. You know, companies, tech companies didn't used to have chief economists. Microsoft's chief economist is uh, Preston McAfee. So more and more, we're, we're seeing new ways for market designers to earn their livings. So th- this is a, a new role that you could have in terms of integrating a market design module into some undergrad or postgrad courses. And do you actually do that yourself? I think that we're seeing market design in, in both undergraduate and postgraduate courses. And we teach quite a few of them here at Stanford, where we have quite a number of market designers. In, in the economics department here, there's, uh, there's me and Muriel Needley and Fujito Kojima working on matching markets. There's Paul Milgram and John Levin and uh, Ilya Segal working on auctions. And we have colleagues doing similar things over in the business school, which is you know a couple of hundred yards away, and in the engineering school, which is a couple of hundred yards in the other direction – well, more than a couple of hundred. So Stanford is a big center of market design, and it's reflected in courses around the university. And is this a strategic decision of Stanford to get economists like yourself to work in this particular area? Well, it might be a strategic decision of the economics department. turns out universities like Stanford are sort of decentralized. I don't know that we make a lot of strategic decisions as a university. But the business school has hired market designers and the economics department has. And now the the department in the engineering school, the Department of Management, Science and Engineering has. So I think all those three departments have consciously thought about market design. Have you ever come across any unintended consequences from the banning of certain markets? Sure. I mean, when you ban markets, you sometimes get black markets. Those are unintended consequences, right? We have, uh, I mean, think of, you know, in the repugnant transaction space, think of, think of laws against selling narcotic drugs. You know, buying and selling narcotics is, is repugnant, but that doesn't mean that narcotics aren't available in the world. And it does mean that a lot of the guys who sell narcotics also shoot people with guns. I'm sure that's an unintended consequence of the, of the war on drugs. And um, what about, a case that a dwarf brought to the French courts. So one of the examples I give and sort of an uncomplicated case of repugnance is there's a sport called dwarf tossing and some dwarves earn their living by, by allowing themselves to be thrown for distance and then you know they're, they're athletes who fall gracefully and roll and don't get hurt. But in many places that's illegal. It's, it's thought of as undignified. And so a, a French dwarf who had been earning his living this way when France made it illegal, brought his case to the UN High Commission of Human Rights and argued that his right to employment was being abridged. But France won. The, you know, dwarf tossing remains banned in France. 
You have a fantastic website, Al, marketdesigner.blogspot.com, and it gives much in-depth discussion and blog posts on the work that you're doing and what you're interested in as well. Um, was there one particular piece of research that stands out to you to be quite relevant or groundbreaking other than your work in repugnant markets? Well, repugnant markets is, is probably the, the part of the thing I post that, that is most easily readable by, by the general public because there are all sorts of repugnant transactions that, that I talk about. But, you know, these days what I'm, I'm working mostly on or a lot of my time is spent on kidney exchange and I post a lot on that and on school choice. I spent a lot of time thinking about the debate about whether kidneys could be bought and sold. That, that sort of crosses over between kidneys and repugnance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an interesting debate. I don't pretend to have the answers. Yes, sir. But, but yeah, I invite anyone to type market design into Google and take a look at my blog to see what they find interesting. Do you have any internet resource that you'd like to share with our listeners? I, I think you pick, you know, my blog is yeah. the one that, that's the easiest. Yeah. And what about a personal habit that helps you get things done? Because you're the Nobel Prize winner you have a lot of research done in the repugnant markets it takes a i'm sure it takes a lot of time and effort to model this type of behavior and the work that you do with companies like the, with the likes of airbnb do you have a personal habit that kind of helps you get focused is it a morning well, ritual or well I, I i you know only partly joking i i should say that i'm trying to learn to work on airplanes uh that would be a good habit to develop but um no i uh you know, I do what I can, and what I can't doesn't get done. And if you could step into a time machine and go to any time in history, who would you love to meet and maybe collaborate with? Ha! Huh. Well, I wouldn't mind meeting John von Neumann. He was one of the originators of game theory, and uh, by all accounts was, was a very smart man. And what type of work did he do in terms of the game theory? Well, he wrote, he and Oscar Morgenstern wrote what, what many people think of as the original book on game theory called Theory of Games and Economic Behavior. And it would certainly be interesting to chat with him about where he saw it going and uh, possibly he would have been happy to hear where it's gone. Professor Roth, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they could find you. I'm at Stanford University, and you can read my latest book, Who Gets What and Why? Uh, the New Economics of Matchmaking and Market Design. You can find all the links to Alvin on economicrockstar.com forward slash Alvin Ross. Alvin, you are an economic rockstar. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun talking to you today. <laughs>